Hello everyone and welcome to Changing Conversations with me, Billy Burke. And me, Sarah Philp. We're really glad you've joined us on this podcast. This podcast is all about changing conversation. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. We come alive when we talk about what's important to us and it's this that has the potential to guide us into new and different ways of being and offer the potential for great things. In this podcast, we want to explore the big questions and the small questions. It's a place for thinking and conversations that hold the potential for change. You will hear from us as well as some of our guests. We would love to hear from you and for you to get involved. You can also follow us on Twitter at Changing Conversations. So welcome to episode seven of Changing Conversations. And tonight we are joined by someone who probably needs very little introduction in the world of educational leadership. Um, and both Billy and I are very humbled to be joined by Michael Fullen tonight. And Michael is an author, a prolific author probably, of many books and many papers, but ultimately is committed to leadership in education so that all children can learn. And so we're delighted to be interviewing Michael tonight. Um, Michael, how are you? How are you doing during the, the COVID-19 lockdown and pandemic? Uh, we're doing fine. As a family, we've got uh, a summer place, so mostly we've been uh, hiding away and going out in the world via Zoom. So that's about it. It's all pretty quiet, at least, uh, and working okay at this time. But it uh, it is seemingly prolonged and prolonged, and that's uh, wicked. Yeah, it is. It does feel like it has been quite a long few months. And as you say, we're all getting used to living and working in the world of Zoom or Microsoft Teams, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, Recently, you tweeted something, and I'm going to I'm going to quote the tweet just so that our listeners can get the sense of it. But you tweeted, "Let's be clear: COVID nineteen provides the opportunity to destroy or let be let be destroyed the public education system, or to develop public education as humanity's savior. It's going to be one hell of a battle." Um, and there's quite a bit of attention around that tweet, but also in your book, Nuance, which was published just last year, you talk about the clock ticking loudly and that the period from 2019 to 2030 is going to be crucial and that society is generally getting worse and education is less effective in producing better citizens. Um, and I, I assume that when you wrote that in, in Nuance, you hadn't predicted that there was going to be a, a global pandemic um, as we have at the moment. But I feel like we really need to start our conversation here and just wondered if you can unpack those statements a little bit for us. Yeah, I can. And there's a, there actually is a lot packed into that tweet. So uh, I want to be careful to uh, be succinct. Actually, it does start in 2019, uh, uh, rather than just at that quote uh, these days. And both in Nuance that you mentioned, Chapter 5 actually, and a second book we did, which is called The Devil is in the Details, Chapter 1, uh, we basically forecast uh, this kind of problem. And it was arising from two major societal factors that were worsening. One was 
climatological collapse, which also includes disease and the spread of disease and the uh, that galloping uh, really deterioration of uh, of the environment and the climate. And equally, and if anything more pronounced, is the inequality that has been growing and growing for many years, but let's say with uh, with accelerating momentum, where the gap between those that have money and those that don't is wider and wider, and it's societal, but it spills over into education. So both of these, the climatological collapse and the growing inequality, uh, they're kind of uh, just crises waiting to happen, and they feed on each other because when there's uh, when there's a, uh, a COVID disease, if there's inequality in society, it's not going to be handled as well as if there was more equality. So these things are really intertwined for for us. And I said you can see it in those two books, uh, verbatim actually, that something has to give soon, uh, and that what gives will not be pretty. So I think we have an example in COVID-19 uh, that it, that has been the given and it's exploded in a way that we couldn't predict at the month, but we could predict it was going to be soon. Uh, then I think the question becomes, uh, it also uh, exposes the problems of the educational system and in society for that matter. The inequity becomes much more uh, visceral because of the uh, way the conditions of, of COVID. So, I think in that sense, then, we have uh, a really uh, obvious sets of problems that people can't deny. So the question is, what do you do about them? And I think when I come to the public education system that we work on, we already saw tendencies uh, in various places for people wanting to go more private, uh, technology taking over uh, earlier, uh, uh, other kinds of charter schools and the academy schools in in uh, England, for example. So we always saw we already saw a tendency where the uh, educate public education system, as we call it, was being questioned. And I have to say at the same time that the public education system or all education systems actually were not performing very well. They were stagnant. So the public education system had stagnated and had been in that state. We we've uh, and others have documented since 1980 it's been kind of a uh, not going anywhere so in one way then you see one can see this uh, as an opportunity to do something and my warning in that in in that tweet was that it could go either way something's got to give because it wasn't working and this is a huge additional aggravation with uh, very very many problems to solve so uh, I, we think it could go either way and we want to prompt the people who want to make a change for the better to get the system out of stagnancy into dynamic development, and we have ideas for that. We want that to be the upper hand. It depends on the government, uh, but uh, certainly I think the public system is in jeopardy. If the public system gets worse, then social cohesion suffers in societies, as well as we think economic development, especially those that, it, that it more has more basis of equity. So I, I think it's a big phenomenon, but we're urging people to think of it as a change inflection and to be on the good side of that and try to, after the initial kind of uh, difficulties, which are we're in the midst of now, and probably will go on for at least 12 months, uh, that coming out of that, 
which means we have to work on it now, will be better solutions than we had had COVID not happened. Can I ask you, how do you think collaboration will play a role in coming out of this and in creating that change? Um, it's something I've been thinking about because I've been thinking about, you know, the spread of the virus on one level potentially puts collaboration at risk in some ways, but then we have digital technologies and the other ways of collaborating, but I'm not sure we've yet quite figured out how to do that and how to do that well. And I'm just interested what, what role you think collaboration may take in, in the months and the years to come. Uh, these are big questions uh, uh, that have had, uh, you know, a, a dynamic history in the last 40 years in education, like collaboration. And I, I probably want to take it more to social cohesion or social connection. Uh, my favorite concept for this uh, phenomenon these days in the last year uh, is connected autonomy. And, and uh, you can see it in the writings, the recent writings, but it basically says uh, humans uh, enjoy a degree of autonomy. And if they become isolated, it's dysfunctional. Uh, and therefore, connection is at the heart of humanity in many ways, whether it's with the family or, or learning or whatever. So connection is vital. And in our application of this now, I'm, I'm happy to say that people that are implementing it see the value of being both autonomous and connected. They say, today I'm, I'm autonomous, I feel like I'm my own person, tomorrow I'm working with the group. So back directly to your question, uh, and as you know, Andy Hargraves, my colleague, uh, and I have been working on collaboration independently together for uh, quite a few years, for about probably, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 years. And uh, what, what collaboration doesn't have a straightforward history. That is, there are lots of forms of superficial collaboration in education or dysfunctional collaboration. So we, uh, we, are, uh, we don't see it as an automatic good. But when you think about it, both for the professional learning of teachers and for societal development, social connection is at the heart of humanity and it's at the heart of learning learning uh, in all respects. So uh, I think we have to take not collaboration as we better have professional learning communities or we better have academies, but more the basic concept of how do we connect with each other. And we are noticing um, in Canada, at least uh, some of the studies of what students are doing in the interim, in the COVID interim, is that some of them, about a quarter of them report that they are actually making better connections, not through the school, but through each other, families, and they're making a contribution to that. So there's a, there's a recognition, I think, with COVID, that isolation is bad, that mm -hmm. people feel that they're disadvantaged if they're isolated, and that forms of social connection are good. So if we can take that uh, glimpse of the reality, which I think is, is, is a more of a natural human phenomenon that's happened during COVID, and then we start to apply it to the learning. Uh, the, I think I put, I put it this way, let's reintroduce collaboration mm -hmm. uh, under the category of connected autonomy mm -hmm. and let's value it, but do it and assess it for what it can accomplish for individual learning and dealing with inequity and a lot of other re reasons. So I wanna go back to the basics in other words and not think of collaboration as a formal co cooperative 
but more as an I, a concept of social connection with a purpose. Mm -hmm. So for a teacher or a school leader listening to this, how might they conceptualize or think about connected autonomy in, in a school or a classroom? It depends what they where what was happening beforehand. If they had, uh, we've noticed this as well because we work with a lot of schools and school systems. Those that had good uh, connection or collaboration prior to COVID have handled the problem better. Uh, I think of Ottawa Catholic School Board that we work with. It's got 83 schools, and you can go on their website OCSB uh, Ottawa Catholic School Board. And you'll see on the website, they're issuing all kinds of examples of collaboration connection going on among students and parents and teachers that is very learning oriented and socially uh, developmental. So I think that, uh, that if you have been in a situation where there's some degree of collaboration, where there are some leaders, teacher leaders or others that are trying to foster that, then figure out the new form that you've been doing it in another set of conditions, but now do it in the new conditions, even on a small scale. Uh, so I think that uh, that is where we're putting our energy and we, we have various projects, especially the deep learning project, where we are uh, helping under these conditions, uh, schools connect to each other. In fact, almost as we talk, uh, one of the districts we're working in that has 50 schools, five zero, uh, we have developed a remote learning uh, two-day collaborative effort with them uh, going in and out of small groups using Zoom and our other mechanisms. So uh, it has to be planned. It has to be uh, scripted, so to speak, not in a kind of highly uh, literal way, but you have to be able to get it in and out of groups. And it's working well. We know they love it. We know they're getting something out of it. It requires a lot of effort. You have to know what you're doing. So, uh, But I would say the short answer is, at least on a one-on-one -on -one basis, a small-scale basis, make sure that you have some social connection and make it into learning. We usually these days combine learning and well-being and the same phenomenon. And if you better do some of that, even if it's a small scale, that's the advice. And if you have an opportunity to expand it because your colleagues want to do that, then expand it uh, and do it. But don't try to do too much. This is a period where if you try to do, if you try to handle safety, access to learning, well-being, all of those at once, and you try to do it fully under these conditions, uh, you will collapse with frustration. So small scale, but basic principles. And if we could stay for a few moments, just on the theme of the disruption that we've all experienced, and and you said yourself there, you anticipate that could continue for up to twelve months. In your recent paper on reimagining education, you describe three phases of response disruption, transition, and reimagining. So what do leaders at school and system level need to do, in your view, to respond to the disruption, to take advantage of it in a way to lead to something positive? Well, we framed it in that, that paper, which is uh, called Education Reimagined. And uh, it's about a 34-page paper. It's based, as you, as you said, on those three phases of disruption, transition, and, and you know, reimagine. Uh, we, we thought at the time that, uh, that this would uh, play out and that uh, pe people would be going back to school, uh, which would be the uh, reimagining part, by September of 2020. It now looks like that's a very uh, early prediction and that the uh, 
ambiguity or the disruption, if you like, is going to take place, is going to take at least another 12 months, is all I can put it. Uh, so that I, it's much longer than we anticipated. But we have in that paper, and we, we also have, it's on the Microsoft YouTube channel by the same title, Joanne Quinn, my co-leader on this. She and I uh, did a, a webinar that's uh, about 45 minutes long where we explain in more detail the, and show uh, the explanations. So what, what they basically say is uh, there's, there are practical checklists, like here, as you go back to try to handle the, uh, the, the solutions, the combination of uh, physical distance and access to, uh, access to learning and well-being. Here's a checklist. We've got a checklist of uh, 20 things to make sure you do that. So in the, um, in the reimagine paper, we have a checklist for people about going back into uh, in developing it, but things are so much in flux now, as you know, I don't think anybody could possibly have a plan that's, uh, here's the plan that's going to work. So going back to, uh, you mentioned, uh, Sarah, the Nuance book, uh, one of the key things about uh, Nuance is that Nuance leaders are, uh, need deep contextual literacy is the phrase I used. That means you really have to understand the uh, context in which you're working. And on the question of what to do under these conditions, uh, I go to Nuance Leadership, the book uh, that I did last year, where it, in fact, I should also wanna say that almost all of our good ideas come from leading practitioners. So uh, this is uh, broadly speaking, including with COVID. And so this means that we're getting uh, ideas from the field, not from some abstract research concept. The leadership we need for this period was already forecast in the Nuance book, where the, uh, the 10 leaders I studied all were uh, really effectively uh, able to go inside the context in which they worked and get understanding of that and then make decisions with others based on that. And now with COVID, it's just in spades, it is that kind of uh, context. And I, let me put it this way, which is another phrase I use in this respect. Uh, every time you take a new job as a leader, you become to a certain extent automatically de-skilled at the beginning. So you're entering a new job, you know some things, you've been hired for that. But yeah. because you're, you're also facing something you don't understand fully in the context, that you are really de-skilled. So this applies completely for COVID because the situation not only is so different, it's changing almost every few days. So this means the leaders have to have this contextual literacy. And that really means they have to be uh, working with others. They have to be co-determining uh, uh, the issues. They have to be adaptive. All of those things that, even though we have the checklist, which help are helpful because they frame things, they really have to be uh, figuring out these things in, in real time, all the time. And I think, I think most people are sympathetic to leaders in the sense that they wouldn't expect leaders to be crystal clear. They shouldn't expect leaders to be crystal clear. I think where it gets problematic is leaders pretend that they know what, what to do and, be, and people that are working in the, in the field know that that's not the case. So it breaks down even further. So my best advice to leaders has always, re, you know, has been now recently, 
uh, figure out the deep context. Don't pretend you know everything. Be a learner as well as uh, an expert, or to put it another way, be an apprentice as well as a, a learner. And I think if you're transparent about those and you're le learning with them and you have the intention to, to, to deal with issues and you're working with people, it will work out all right uh, in those cases. It's where those leaders pretend that they know more than they do or they keep the, they keep the, uh, the reins of it to themselves. And then especially this happens with politicians or people at this system level uh, who are handling this. We see it in Ontario right now. There's massive unconfidence on the part of teachers, families, communities in relation to the official uh, uh, decision makers because the decision makers are not being very open and they're trying to pretend they know what they're doing. So leaders have to get close to the problem, stay there um, and make decisions as we're talking about. We've got the guidelines, but guidelines only uh, are only general things. You have to really know what you're doing in the day-to-day -day situation. Well, that's certainly advice that I'll take forward and many of us will take forward in Scotland as we look to open in, in just a few weeks on a full-time basis, Michael. Uh, the initial plan was a blended approach, but the suppression of the virus in Scotland is, we think, at the stage where we can have young people back full-time um, with very limited distancing and some enhanced hygiene, etc. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely great advice. None of us are experts. We've not done this before. And we need to be open and honest with the people that we're working with on a, on a day and daily basis. Yes, and I think you know we see in those situations the logistics of doing it could usurp all the time and energy you have, and you don't yep. really get a chance to look at the learning depth. So I think what we uh, it, and I, I'm empathetic about it because it's completely understandable that people get totally uh, occupied by the logistics of making this work. Uh, so we, we want that people to attend to that, but we want them to think, even though they might not kick in for another six months or so, what are the learning opportunities here? What do, uh, what do we know? And our own deep learning framework actually is very good for stimulating those opportunities, some of which can be done more easily under these conditions than under the normal school timetable. You said there that we we kind of need nuance and nuance leaders in in spade loads at the moment. And when I I read nuance uh, last year when it first came out, and then I I came back to it just at the beginning of our lockdown here, so probably end of March, beginning of April. And one of the things that struck me at that point was that it was just so relevant to I guess where we were finding ourselves at that point and what was to come. If you've got any uh, any insights for for the for the leaders that are listening to this podcast about what habits they could be developing um, to to become that nuanced leader, what what does that mean? Well, they can start by reading my book. <laughs> we'll we'll put a link in there. Absolutely. Yeah, because uh, and I say that mainly because it's got the uh, the examples in in there of uh, of by name, the people that I interviewed and looked at. And I selected those people because I thought they were different. They were especially effective. They were, uh, they were if you like, nuanced. And uh, I didn't know exactly what that, how, how that would look in practice. And I was able to pull it out from them, cross-check it, and then draw these conclusions. So the, I mean, the framework of it is make sure you jointly determine 
uh, the solutions, uh, not just the front end, but uh, all the way through. I, lo I love the expression that I often cite from the uh, CEO of Honeywell when he retired and was asked how, uh, how what, what's the most important thing he's learned about being a leader. Uh, he said, by far the most important thing is to be right at the end of the meeting, not at the beginning of the meeting. Mm -hmm. And he was using a metaphor, but basically saying, if you're right at the beginning of the meeting, you're only right in your own mind. If you're right at the end of the meeting, i.e. a process of some sort, you have jointly figured it out with the group. So the biggest lesson of all is the apprentice-expert uh, combination, the fact that uh, you have to interact with people and figure out the solution where you will have some good ideas. And the more you do that, the better your ideas will be. be. But you have to also get good ideas from teachers, parents, uh, and, te and, and students, because the uh, nuance is about detail also. About, uh, and if, 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 you're, if you're going to get to be detailed, you have to be immersed in the issues. And so we've got some wonderful examples in there. The, probably the best one uh, from England is Lancashire Mary. You know, she came into a school in, uh, that was a, you know, terrible, had been terrible for 12 years or more and turned it around with the same people in that school. So Marie Claire Bretherton is her name. And it's in the book, it's in her own words and me teasing it out. So even the most um, impossible cases, such as that one, seemingly impossible, can be figured out if you, have, if you uh, can be smart enough as a leader to have a few good ideas and then to start the process where you're drawing out other people to practice some of the things that, uh, that work and then the collective uh, discovery of that. So it's a very sophisticated process, I think, of keeping your finger on the pulse of change and being a learner in the midst of it. And I think that uh, it is nuanced, but nuance can be, but through practice, can be appreciated. And as I said, the key to it is thinking of context. Do I understand context? Is this context changing, which is happening all the time now? Therefore, I don't understand it if it's changing unless I stay with it. So you also you've talked about the devil in the detail as well. And I've only just started um reading that book, but it equally has me um captured. And if you were up for it in the future, then maybe you could come back and chat to us more about that one as well. Yeah, I think this would be good because uh, things will also hopefully in the next 12 months will become uh, clear, I must say for better or for worse, clearer for worse, clearer for better. That's why I think it's such a critical time. Uh, and, uh, and I think we can, uh, uh, we can talk because the devil of the detail starts to get into system change. What do you do at the local level? What do you do at the middle level where the uh, local authorities are? And what should the, uh, the, the state level do and what, with that, those three connections? And I'll say one main thing about it is one of the things we've discovered uh, is that uh, the best change is I would I the phrase I would use is relentlessly bottom up, provided that the system uh, enables that bottom up uh, relationship to develop, and I think that's the key. Not to get the policies right and then try to implement them, but to turn it on its head, and then begin to pull out. And in our deep learning work now, in the midst of COVID, we are seeing great bottom up ideas starting and it's a question is how to harness them how to spread them how to make them uh, with greater depth 
feel some courage needed in that to turn things on its head. You've said the magic word courage, because I want to comment on it. It's a, it's rather kind of um, mysterious, I guess, as a word. But most most of us, I think, would say, well, people have courage, or or, or they don't have it. Uh, but again, if I go to Marie Claire Bretherton, she talks about courage, and she said, I was I I didn't know what to do. I was really completely um, uh, at, a lo at a loss about how to do it, and and yet I I wanted to go further. And I put it this way, once she got some success, her courage went up. Her courage didn't go up and cause success, mm -hmm. but she figured out how to get success and she felt more confident and courageous. So, mm -hmm. so this is good news for all of us because it means that courage uh, is, is, is not something you just happen to have and you step in front of a bullet. That's not how it works. It's, it's that you really do hard good, you learn a lot, and you get that sense of, wow, we did this, we can do more. And your courage actually goes up as a result of the success. Mm -hmm. It's the speed of change or taking the bull by the horns is not the phrase I would use with the one we use is go slow to go fast. Mm -hmm. So that at the beginning, there has to be a little and uh, all of the cases in the book are like this, that it, you size up the situation you try to build a little bit of trust on a small scale at the beginning. You don't go too fast, but you also don't just let it sit. And uh, it seems like if you, if you pay attention to the relationships and where people are and cultivating and reassuring them, and you do that, I'm gonna even put a number on it for six months, you then can begin to ramp up into action with them. Uh, but if you, if you jump into action the first two months, it's too soon. If you let it go while we're going to study it and take time, then it never happens. So this is again a timing issue. And it's not that long a time, six months of working at the foundation to get action started uh, is, is, is a reasonable amount of time and it goes by quickly. Uh, so that I think there's a, again a lesson in there about, uh, about timing and uh, not too fast, not too slow kind of solution, the Goldilocks question. Let's stick with that, that theme there, Michael, if we can, about the development and the growth of leaders and, in particular, leadership development. And I first became directly exposed to your work when studying at master's level, probably about 14 years ago, uh, while working at University of Strathclyde. And then later, when I was working towards the, the Scottish qualification for headship, as it was called at the time. And mm -hmm. I, I've always believed that academic learning for, for leaders is vital alongside other forms of professional and, and personal development. So first of all, on a personal level, thank you for the, all the learning that, that you've given me and many, many others directly. And secondly, what, what are your thoughts on this idea about the, the blend of academic learning and, and other, other ways of learning? And how important do you think it is for school leadership? That's a very good question, and I'm going to give you a strange answer in one way, which is, uh, I think if I, if I would call it academic learning, the, of the kind you talk about, even if it's good books like mine that you're applying, of course. Uh, you can, individuals can learn a bit here, but by and large, the volume of work that's being done through master's courses on academic learning and the yield to leadership is not, uh, it's not, it's not worth it in that one sense. So I'm, I'm going to be hesitant about academic learning and saying, and I'll give you my own version of what will make it work. But sure. what doesn't make it work is if it is, uh, 
individual courses that people take, even if they're kind of applied, they're not going to be strong enough to have that. And I can, I can say it more specifically because we just designed or in the middle of an online course for school leaders in Chile and Latin America. And uh, we've designed the course. Uh, we have the academic, uh, and, and incidentally, the best academic books are grounded in practice. I mentioned I get my best ideas from practical things. Uh, all of us who are kind of effective or in the present in the leadership field, Andy Hargrave is another good example I mentioned. Uh, he is very much immersed in practice right now, and that's why his books are so good. Mm -hmm. So what what uh, what we did in um, to get to illustrate it more lively in Chile, uh, we have uh, a cohort of let's say thirty school leaders. They're they're already practicing leaders. They're in groups of uh, of about five or six. They're still they're dealing with each other remotely. Each group of five has a coach or a tutor that we uh, support. And uh, that we, the, the course itself has uh, uh, three modules of two days each. So it's six full days, three pairs of two. And uh, what we do in those, a, a lot of activity, it's a, like a day long module, is, uh, is, a, is, a, mo is a, a set of work where they are, we're presenting some things on slides and, and maybe some videos. They're doing some things in, in small groups they're relating to their tutors. We're going back and forth all day long in the triangle, if I put it this way, is the participant, his or her coach or tutor, and ourselves uh, uh, as, as leading the course. So that course is highly participatory and each of them works on their own theory of action, applying it to real problems. So, uh, so my point about this is the, the best of academic work has to be integrated in a highly applied learning experience of the kind I've just described, yeah. uh, that, that, that it will really mean a lot. We know because we've evaluated, this is our second round at it. We did one last year. And the participants get uh, say they get, and we can show they get a tremendous amount out of it. They're dealing with the concepts, but they're operationalizing them. And this is another example of nuance and context. They are operationalizing them in their own context. That's why it connects. That's why they have to work at the learning. So, uh, so that's you know, I'm I'm sure my I know my books were on a lot of uh, leadership courses over the last uh, 20 years, and that's been great for me to have that. And those ideas get exposed, and they're useful in general, but they're probably not useful in specific in applied situations. So I'm calling for a new form of leadership development that integrates practice and academic knowledge. Yeah, I like the idea of, uh, as well of the of the triangle of the individual with a coach working alongside those that are leading the the course yeah. or that are learning more directly. Yeah, and I think some of the work I'm, I'm, I haven't been in touch with uh, Scotland much, but uh, in the last five years or so. But I think some of the uh, leadership work that's gone on there is uh, has some of the features I've just described. Yeah, the. The into headship qualification, which has now replaced the, the SQH, um, certainly does emphasize the practical application um, mm -hmm. of, the, of the learning that's done at university through a strategic change initiative that, that the yeah. students, you know, and really it, it's not so much about the, the change initiative in and of itself, it's the learning that's associated with it. Yeah, no, that's the idea for sure.
Michael, thank you very much. We, uh, we finish every podcast by asking our guests the same three questions. And question one for you is for you to share with us what you wanted to be when you were growing up. I'm a late, late bloomer. So I, got, I, I want to say I didn't know what I wanted to do or to put it one way, I came from a hockey playing family. And so uh, we, I used to get up four o'clock every morning when I was in my teenage time to play a couple of hours before I went to school. So I would have loved to be a hockey player. And I only got serious uh, about uh, academic work when I started to do my master's degree. So I've kind of, kind of very general uh, and uh, I didn't I didn't know. So I think this actually applies to a lot of people I've talked to. They didn't know what they wanted to do. Or even worse, one, one could say, a lot of people tell me they became lawyers or doctors or whatever because they were expected to be and now they don't like it. So even they appeared to know what they do. It wasn't what they wanted to do. So I, I don't mind people uh, being uh, ambiguous about their future, not sure. Uh, you need to get around to it sooner than later. I would say I didn't get around to it till I was about age 30. Uh, that's not late, maybe, but it is kind of late when in my era when people were starting up a lot earlier. So not doing late, late bloomer. It only became obvious after I started to do some of it. And then it grew with my uh, applying the work in, uh, in during the PhD and then during the initial consultancies. And then I got excited uh, in, in the middle of the work rather than prior to it. Thank you. You may describe yourself as a late bloomer, but I would say you've definitely made up for it in the work that you've done. <laughs> Absolutely. Fine since. Yeah. Uh, still not still not too late to go for the hockey career. <laughs> uh, yeah, are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's pretty it's even more vicious than when I was a uh, player. Yeah. We know that you've um, you've written plenty and many many books, but we're interested to know what are you reading at the moment. Uh, that, well, it's a relevant question because it's sitting on my desk now, and I'm halfway through it. I just started about a week ago. It's called Lincoln on the Verge, so mm -hmm. uh, Abraham Lincoln, mm -hmm. and it's a story that hasn't been told before apparently. But it's the 13 days uh, leading up to his initial appointment as president, where he had to. He traveled uh, across the country from um, from you know Springfield, Illinois, where he was, and uh, uh, in, in around 1860, I guess this is, uh, on his way to become president. And while he was doing this, he was uh, the the Southern states were uh, were rebelling and wanting to form the Confederation against him because he was a abolitionist in, in terms of uh, slavery. So. This is, this is actually interesting in one way because it says, you know, here's a leader who for 13 days, and there was all kinds of assassination uh, plots for, against him, was lead, before he even took the job, even though he was heading for it, knew that he was being attacked right and left and had to, you know, eventually had to figure out, do I still want the job? Uh, and also figure out uh, what do we, and then eventually he became great you know his uh, team of rivals kind of approach where he he brought his uh, people that are against him he brought, made them part of his team in the cabinet eventually and, and he faced uh, it's what we call uh, uh, move towards the danger uh, sooner than later so in one sense he was lucky to be alive although he got assassinated you know five or six years later uh, but it, it took me to mind of a leader having a very bumpy ride on the road to becoming a leader 
and there's no nothing more uh, complex than what he did, and it's documented well in this particular book. What he had to do in those uh, 13 days just prior to being uh, officially uh, acclaimed as the president at the and at the time. So it's uh, I'm not sure. I'm I'm just reading it for knowledge and pleasure in history, but uh, I like the idea of uh, of a leader becoming a leader uh, in a sense against a lot of odds and learning as much on the way to becoming a leader as they would once they became the leader. There was something really interesting in comparing that approach to learning as a leader from that president of the United States to the current one. However, that's that's a whole separate podcast. <laughs> that would take uh, yeah, us quite we have had a long, but uh, there's, uh, there's an example of a leader who learned nothing on the way becoming a leader. And, uh, <laughs> and it shows. Uh, so... Um, Final question, Michael, is to to ask you what what quote or message you would want to leave our listeners with. Many of our listeners, no doubt, will use your your work um, in terms of quotes and messages. But what message would you like to leave for our listeners today? I would say, if I put it in one sentence, it would be uh, change yourself, change the system. You know, in other words, keep that uh, that duality in the forefront of your mind meaning that uh, you have to change yourself to become a better learner because it's, you know, lead learners are, uh, half, you know, half lead and half learning all the time in that intermix. So if you realize that you have to change yourself and that that's, uh, that gives you permission and, and in fact expectation that you've got to be a learner, uh, that's, that's the part. And then the second part is change the system because uh, we are now, the, this is the devil in the details, we are now, um, myself and the team, much more interested in how does the whole system change, the province of Ontario or Scotland as a country. And, uh, and there's lots of strategies being used in Scotland now. And I remember way back, I don't know, 20 years ago, Curriculum for Excellence came in uh, and, uh, and the, the old system people didn't like because it was too detailed and too imposed. And then, uh, and then when Curriculum for Excellence, because the document was so good, people fell in love with it, but there was nothing in the document to say, how do you do it? So it floundered because there was no uh, specificity to it. And this is another way of saying it is, I think leaders have to simultaneously, let's say they're at the school level, they have to realize that, yes, I have to be really good here in my school, in my community, but I also have to, uh, I call it systemness. I have to, I have to think of myself as part of the system where I can contribute beyond my school and I can learn from others beyond my school, the to and fro of that. So um, change, um, as I said, change yourself, but also change the system and have that duality be your mandate. That's, that's wonderful. There's a, a focus in Scotland at the moment on changing the system and changing the system to empowerment at every level, you know, and particularly in moving um, that autonomy and connectedness more around, more closely to the to the young person. So it's maybe something we could return to in the future. I know your colleague Carol Campbell is advising the government in that area at the moment. Yeah, I do, do know that. And I think the, uh, and we're working this out around connected autonomy in other places uh, yeah. that the, um, I'm, I'm a bit, um, have res reservations about the world and word empowerment because it, it implies that someone's empowered and therefore isolated to do something. 
Whereas our connected autonomy says, yeah, you're empowered, but you have a responsibility to connect back. That's part of the part of the arrangement. Um, yeah. More more autonomy, but more responsibility to connect laterally where you are and vertically or or otherwise uh, outside your system. So this is the only way that systems will change is that people at all three levels are are trying to change the system and uh, empowerment. I, uh, my advice is use the word empowerment to build in connectedness. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. We've really, really enjoyed the conversation. As Sarah said at the beginning, it's actually been a great honor to speak to you. So thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. And I'm uh, just stimulated me to uh, once the, uh, the climate clears that we can, uh, can be back in Scotland because I know you've done a lot in the last five years uh, and I'd be very interested to see uh, where you're, uh, where you're progressing to. So I hope I get that opportunity in the next two years. Absolutely. That would be wonderful to have you back in Scotland. And again, thank you so much for the insights that you've given um, and shared today. And I know that school leaders and also system leaders that will listen to this podcast will have many opportunities to reflect on where they are, what they're doing and what they can do to move things forward as we um, return back to schools in August in Scotland and see what comes next. So thank you very much. Okay, best wishes to you. Bye, bye, Sarah, Billy. Thank you for talking. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode and please join us again for the next one. In the meantime, you can get involved with the conversation via Twitter or by seeing the episode notes for our contact details. Thank you again from both of us. Stay safe and take good care.